0: You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist. Uh, Those who follow us will know we've spent a lot of time on the German and the transatlantic economy and indeed the global economic system uh, in in recent months, and uh, with good reason. Uh, Russia's brutal war on Ukraine has uh, unleashed an international security crisis, but that is also... Uh, it has an economic dimension that is quite significant. The, the United States, the European Union, and the G7 nations have responded with economic sanctions. The relationships, especially the energy relationship with Russia uh, is now uh, being wound down essentially. And of course, people look at this uh, situation and wonder about what this means for the global economy and for um, example, relations, economic relations with China. So the economic component of the international security crisis we are living through is extremely important. And we have a great guest with us today to help us understand uh, these uh, aspects a bit better. And that is Carl Heuskin. He is the president of the VDMA, that is the Machinery and Equipment Manufacturers Association in Germany. Have I gotten that right, uh, Carl?
1: Perfect, really perfect.
0: Okay, um, and you know, this, uh, for those who are not familiar with the VDMA, it is, if I understand correctly, uh, it is with, has about 3,500 members um, and, uh, and it is, the largest industrial association in Europe is that right, Carl, or is that just yes, a little bit of propaganda?
1: Right. If you take the uh, the number of uh, member companies and the number of employees represented, it's the largest industrial association.
0: Okay, uh, Carl is also the chairman of the supervisory board of HAVE Hydraulics, um, a an organization that he also uh, led for many years as chairman of the management board. So has uh, deep roots in the German industrial sector. To, to give our listeners a little bit of a, an understanding of what types of companies we're talking about when we talk about an average member of VDMA, uh, how, how would you describe it? Or is there a, a good example you'd like to uh, name?
1: First of all, I think it's um, um, it is important to understand that um, this industry has a a widespread portfolio of member companies from large ones like FEMA's energy example given or or Schaeffler or WASH to very small ones or even startups um, in the AI um, segment um, of the manufacturing industry. However, we also do have a profile of what I'd like to call a classical um, manufacturing company in, in Germany, and that would be a family owned business and the average of our members, the average um, has just 150 to 200 uh, employees. So you have to imagine a family-owned business working in some kind of technology niche in the manufacturing sector
0: um, with 150 people somewhere in the German countryside. Okay, so this is the 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 classical um, Mittelstand, the uh, the 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 heart and soul um, of the German economy, uh, if you will. Yeah, you may you may call it heart and soul. Yes, and the hardworking hands. Okay, very good. Uh, I am joined, as always, when we discuss these topics by Peter Rashish, who is a senior fellow and director of the geoeconomics uh, program at AICGS. And so let's uh, let's go uh, right, right into this. You were in Washington uh, and made a trip through the United States uh, just recently. You had meetings with members of Congress, people in the United States administration, and across uh, the uh, relevant parts of the American uh, landscape. Uh, how do you see the state of the trade and economic relationship between Germany and the United States right now, Carl?
1: Let's have a very short look at, at, at the fundamentals. Um, it is important uh, to know and, and never to underestimate the common ground we have um, across the Atlantic, which is a free market economy as a starting point, as part of an open society with democratic participation. We should always keep that in mind um, as a a fundament uh, we base um, our relationship upon. And this common ground um, helps us a lot in order to overcome uh, one or the other operational uh, conflict uh, we may have. Um, From this basis, uh, both countries um, apply industrial policies, but are doing so with um, different motivation. Uh, Germany, if I try to to cut it short, um, is a social market economy. So um, the policy framework is trying to tame the forces of free markets in order to limit inequality, support the weak and create a, let's say socially just society, however you may define that. Now, if you look at the US and industrial policy and trade policy in the US, um, economy is an integral part of national strengths and international influence. So national security um, is a key driver for um, industrial policy. And with the Biden administration uh, being uh, in charge now for for two years, um, we also have the aspect of a social policy um, high on the list, and that's kind of new from our European perspective, um, looking at jobs, at unionized jobs, at well-paid, clean um, and safe jobs. Um, And on the other side, in Germany, we have added national security as a new major motive Um, after the attack um, of Russia um, on Ukraine. So we have more common ground uh, today, in my belief, than ever um, in the last um, 10 years. And it is also, if you look at jobs, if you look at the motive of jobs in the US, I think it's uh, worth mentioning that uh, the industry I represent, machinery and equipment manufacturers, um, have about um, 100,000, 104,000 jobs, well-paid, clean jobs uh, in the US, which is already more than the US uh, steel industry. And if you look at German industry overall, German industry um, has over 1 million jobs um, active um, in the US. So this is a significant force uh, for creating uh, and maintaining good jobs um, in the US. Mm -hmm. I think it's not yet really transparent for many policymakers and decision Mm makers that we have met um, in Washington, um, how strong um, already, um, how strong the role is that German um, industrial companies play Um, in the US um, economy. At the same time, um, talking about the typical VDMA member as um, at the beginning, we must keep the US market also open for small technology providers who drive industrial productivity and innovation, but do not have the resources to localize um, their business um, in the US.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, So I I wanna zero in, on one aspect you mentioned, and that is the growing importance of national sh- security considerations in uh, economic policymaking or in policymaking uh, more generally. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, uh, he described the, the, the international environment as a Zeitenwende, uh, a word that is uh, you know, getting used more and more among people, uh, English speakers talking about. Uh, the situation, in other words, a watershed or a sea change, um, and so the German government is revisiting its security and its economic policies, and these two are intertwined. How do you see the progress on that front? Do you, uh, and where do you think that focus should be when we talk about the nexus between security um, and economic policy? Mm-hmm. Well,
1: <laughs> you know, Kindergarten, Hinterland, Zeitenwende. So uh, here we go. Um, important uh, German words. Um, in, in English. <laughs> um, Yes, uh, we have an, an additional 100 billion uh, euro getting into um, the German uh, defense system over the next five years. And this is, um, I don't know how aware uh, many people uh, in America are about this. This is really, I, I call it a sensational uh, change. And um, also the German parliament has decided and had brought on the way in the budget uh, to finally keep the 2% uh, threshold um, for investments um, in in the defense system. Um, And that's really new. I think this is a big uh, step forward into the right direction. It is very unfortunate uh, that they took a war um, at the Eastern border of Europe um, to make this happen. And therefore it is true that the war on Ukraine has fundamentally changed Uh, the perception um, of Germans on the post-Cold War world order um, and especially on the role um, of uh, Russia. Uh, We have to say that German policymakers, especially on the Social Democrat side, SPD, but also in our major party, the Union, CDU, were over decades nurturing a kind of a naive and romantic um, perspective on Russia, maybe rooted in the role of, of Mikhail Gorbachev during the German reunification. And by the way, this kind of naivete was also shared by big parts of German industry, um, mainly due to one motive, um, cheap fossil energy uh, for the German uh, manufacturing industry. So basically, politics and industry were both supporting this kind of of mistaken um, friendship with Russia, and and these days are definitely um, over. The focus Mm -hmm. must be on a fundamentally new structure of energy supply to Germany and to German industry and to supply chain independence from such cluster risks Mm -hmm. in the future.
0: So uh, what I've heard you say just now is a pretty enthusiastic endorsement of the energy transformation of the German economy, not only from the point of view of, of climate policy uh, but also as a national security issue um, it, it, is is this something where you know your member companies for example are concerned or do they is there a broad uh, shared yeah uh, support for this uh, for the the consequences of the energy transformation e- even now
1: well what we see is a portfolio of chances and risks and what we will see are, winners and losers um, in this transformation so if i if i talk to managers if i talk to to owners uh, um, to companies what i see is everything from enthusiasm to concern to real fear uh, depending on how dependent your business model uh, in the past was on cheap fossil energy coming uh, mainly from russia um, on the supply chain side and let's say example given conventional combustion engines Um, um, on the market side. So let's assume you manufacture uh, special grinding machines or a mechanical part um, of a combustion engine transmission, uh, you're really in trouble uh, on the market side. Let's assume you run a a foundry um, uh, to make foundry parts and and you have uh, 15 to 20% um, energy cost in your portfolio, which is currently uh, um, five times higher than it was before. Then you run in trouble on the supply chain side. However, The major part, the bigger part of the companies um, perceive this transformation as a chance. Um, Germany um, has always been an an engineering and a technology driven uh, um, economy. The share of the manufacturing industry in Germany is 23%, which is the highest in large um, industrialized um, and climate change will only be managed with the respective technologies. And such technologies can be engineered and manufactured in Germany. So there is more chance than risk, but there are also companies that are really in trouble.
2: We've been speaking about Russia, but uh, it does also seem that Germany's approach to relations with China uh, is is changing and with more concern to diversify the country's trade and investment uh, commitments Do you think that uh, Germany should indeed reduce its exposure to China and if so, how can German firms go about that and will that be painful? We talk a lot um,
1: about the Russian war and and the energy crisis because this is basically the urgent matter of the day. However, um, the China challenge is the elephant in the room. the the importance um, of of China as as an economy, as part of the global economy, as a market, as well as on the supply chain side, is is a a multiple um, of uh, what Russia is today. And I've been talking about cluster risks um, a few minutes ago, cluster risks uh, on the supply chain side, fossil energy from Russia. Um, And the China challenge is by far the largest cluster risk for the German industry, because it is a dependency on the supply and on the demand side. Um, It is important to understand, however, that China is such an important and diversified player in the global economy that a real decoupling uh, will hurt all of us on every side of the Atlantic and on every side um, of the Pacific. So in my opinion, the China challenge really is to make it clear to the Chinese government and to the people in China um, that if they want to be part of the game, they have to be active participants in multilateral agreements like WTO, like LO, um, etc. And they have to apply the rules and regulations of a competition and market-based economic world and not work with explicit or even more, implicit hidden state subsidies and protectionism. And third, coming back to the very current uh, picture with Russia, not siding with irrational autocrats um, like Putin. Um, I think this is the framework that China has to recognize in order to be or to remain a global player and, and grow its importance um, in a globalized economy. Um, for us, Germany and the EU, um, this means similar to the Russia example, we should stop being naive. If we want to deal and negotiate with China on an eye level, we have to be courageous and consequent enough to do so. Um, And the EU has started uh, legislative initiatives, which are going into that direction, um, and which are important. If I come to the very detailed level um, of our member companies, yes, it is true. Those companies that do have a cluster risk in China, demand side or or supply side, um, are looking to a plan B. They must work uh, on a strategic alternative in case the picture will change.
2: You mentioned um, that the EU is beginning to take some actions um, on this front, and it's, and it's certainly true that Germany isn't alone. And, and one of the aspects um, where I think it's fair to say Germany uh, shares some concern with other countries is about this idea of friend-shoring, um, reorienting supply chains to, to, to like-minded countries and away from more unreliable ones. Um, what do you think the basis should be for Germany or the U.S. or others to decide, you know, that a trading partner indeed is a friend? <laughs>
1: now we're coming to the big questions in life: what is a good friend? Um, and um, and when we talk about non-friends, there is also an old wisdom uh, which says if you can't beat them, join them. Um, and if I look now at the concept of French in, I strongly believe the concept is good in some cases. Example, given the idea um, of a climate club, which we might discuss a little bit uh, later on. Um, The climate club, um, as the idea of um, having an alliance of the top 10 to 15, let's say Western industrialized countries, um, create a common market for the negative impact of greenhouse gases. Uh, That would create a center of gravity uh, for CO2 or greenhouse gas uh, trading systems with a a critical mass. Um, And then others, um, which are excluded um, at the beginning, have the option either to join to the rules already set or remain excluded. However, um, if French shoring is just a friendly term for decoupling, um, it is misunderstood. If we exclude non friends, from all or major economic activities, again, this will harm all parties um, involved. So in my opinion, French warring makes sense in cases of national security. Then it makes sense to talk about um, French warring, but not in every kind of industry and in every kind of global business relationship. The possible result may even be kind of a moral colonialism um, which is excluding a number of developing countries from uh, global trade and uh,
0: industries. If, if, if I could interject there, uh, I want to ask, uh, Carl, you, you know, you've spent uh, several days in Washington and had meetings with people in the legislative branch, in the executive branch. Do, did you find on in those conversations an understanding from your American counterparts for this point you were just making um, that uh, uh, about uh, the principles that uh, have to underlie um, these kinds of decisions? My impression is yes. Um,
1: if, I, uh, um, if I review the talks we had, the, the concept of, of French shoring being applied uh, to national security industries, um, I feel a lot, of, uh, a lot of common ground and, and common understanding And at the same time, um, my impression, also example given with with the USDR, is not that the American administration is looking at a a complete or or far reaching uh, decoupling from China. So French shoring as as a concept to exclude China from a globalized economy, uh, from my perspective, doesn't seem um,
2: part of the picture. You mentioned uh, the idea of a climate club, which is something that uh, German Chancellor Scholz has been um, pushing for, as part of the, the country's G7 presidency, this idea that you'd have countries which have um, high ambitions on decarbonization would all um, uh, join forces, uh, and but and part of this would be uh, that they would um, have a common way of treating. Um, imports from countries outside the club who might be producing things in a less climate-friendly way, in a more carbon-intensive way, uh, and that could include taxes or tariffs on those, on those imports from outsiders. Um, do you think this is a positive step? Would you be concerned about any aspect of this, or do you think, think that any risks are worth taking? Um.
1: There is, no, there is no doubt um, that the Climate Club is an important and, in my opinion, uh, um, existential tool um, to manage climate change. Why? Um, if we want to reach uh, the Paris goals, um, if we agree on, on, on the paradigm uh, of managing um, uh, climate change, we need a swift um, and, and dramatic um, reaction um, and change in many, many industries and pricing on greenhouse gases is, is the key. Um, let's agree um, that we want to make this happen uh, in a free market economy. There is another concept. I mean, there are other concepts out there saying, OK, there is a strong state and the strong state is making a legislation, um, is, is, is making, is forbidding behaviors, is forbidding the use of materials. So we could try to go for a state control kind of uh, climate management system. Um, I believe that such a state-controlled climate management system is by far not working as well as a market-based climate change management. And um, the fundamentals for a market-based climate change management um, is greenhouse gas pricing. Now, everybody's thinking about that. And now let's assume the EU comes forward uh, with a pricing system and then is creating uh, um, what they call a carbon uh, border adjustment um, a mechanism, and and the U.S. is working on the same, um, and maybe if um, other countries are working on the same, then at the end of the day, uh, we create um, different pricing systems and, and different border adjustment systems, which is pure protectionism, and which will reduce uh, global trade uh, significantly. So it, made much, it makes much more sense to unite, um, as mentioned before, um, um, to unite a climate club as the most important industrialized countries that do have the critical mass to be the center of gravity for a global
2: greenhouse gas pricing system. If I could go back to the issue of supply chains, um, the European Commission recently proposed banning all products uh, that come into the EU, which are made with forced labor. Um, how do you view this and other moves towards a, what could more broadly called a values-oriented trade policy?
1: There is no tra- uh, there is no doubt um, that if you look at free trade agreements today, um, value based um, policy fields um, will always be part of it, and this is already true for for, for quite some time. If you look at FTAs um, that the EU has made uh, in the past uh, five to ten years. Um, um, CETA was Canada, for example, uh, Mercosur that is almost 100% um, negotiated. Then you find uh, chapters um, on, on on ESG matters in all of these um, FTAs. So um, no doubt, trade is an instrument um, to also enforce um, other policy fields. So it's not a question of doing this yes or no, it's a question to, to what extent um, um, uh, to what extent do we want to be non-trade policy fields being part of trade agreements? And um, um, I believe there is was a limit to that. Um, if you put too much of other policy fields into a trade agreement, then we will find no partners uh, for trade agreements and then nothing will improve. So if we want to improve, for example, given the ecological situation in, in Southern America, Mercosur has a chapter on ec- um, ecological matters only which is much better than what we see today, but now if we if we pull uh, further, if, if we keep uh, screwing, um, then the South American side, or specifically Brazil, we don't know, don't know. Um, if this and this is part of the FTA. We don't sign it, and then nothing happens. So it's again, you know, we have to find the right balance. Uh, the key of a trade agreement is trade, and we might enrich that with other stuff. But the other stuff should not be the core of the agreement. Applying this to human rights, uh, which is, in my opinion, one of the most difficult questions we are faced with, not just on a policymaker level, but also if if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a company owner, or if you manage uh, um, um, a global corporation, how do you deal uh, with human rights? Um, Then I believe that it has to be addressed. Uh, We cannot continue doing business with with disregarding um, human rights aspects. And forced labor is an important um, um, aspect. So we support the initiative um, of the EU to fight um, uh, forced labor. We all know who is targeted. And that is, by the way, something that we see um, in a number of legislative projects on both sides of the Atlantic. And, And we have to see the risk of that as well. A lot of this is specifically targeted against China and against things that the current Chinese administration is putting into practice. But but by by being a general legislation, it may hurt um, other relationships um, as well. So if national security uh, laws are applied to the steel sector in the US, and then the EU is excluded uh, from bringing steel uh, into the US and uh, EU steel certainly is not a national security problem, um, then you get um, what I mean. If if we mm-hmm. want, if, if we want to do something good for the people in China, if we want to change forced labor in the Xinjiang uh, province, uh, to take a very uh, detailed example, um, I'm not quite sure whether FTAs are the right tool. Mm-hmm.
0: And if we if we go beyond the particular concerns that relate to to China or to Russia, as we've done earlier in the conversation, there's also an increasing questioning of the value of globalization, um, especially the globalization that we've seen since the end of the Cold War. There has been no new trade liberalization in the WTO um, and, and the rules on things like the digital economy are out of date. Um, you are aware, I'm sure, that in the United States, uh, you know, there are some who are concerned that globalization has created too many losers and not enough winners domestically. Uh, there there may be a, a shared sense of, of that among some uh, quarters in Germany, but uh, are you still a believer in the rules-based international economic, economic order that we've got now, or do you think it needs a fundamental overhaul? Jeff, this is a key question. Um, promoting uh,
1: or opposing globalization or promoting or opposing uh, multilateral trade and rules should not be a question of belief, um, but it should be based on facts. And again, I will use China as an example. Why is China successfully bringing hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in the past 35, four years? Why is it succeeding in building infrastructure and improving education over decades? I'm not talking about the last four years. Uh, It happened because in 1978, Deng Xiaoping opened the society up and opened the economy up. So the reason for success in China is openness, not being closed. The reason for success in China is not authority, but participation. And there's a very interesting statistic that I really love. Um, If you take um, uh, the the domestic product per uh, capita, the GDP per capita, and you start in 1978, and now you compare four economies, China, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, and you run this timeline to 2016, 2017, who has the lowest growth rate of the GDP over all these years of these four economies? It is China. China because China is not completely open. They have opened up, but only partially, while these other Asian economies that are also in Asia that have collectivism instead of individualism, all these factors that that are discussed when we compare um, economies, the other three were growing faster over this period of time. And I promise you, if there weren't um, the the opening policy of the NGO Ping, China would still be somewhere, not in the Middle Ages, but, but not far away from that. So openness. And participation is the key and not being closed um, and and having authoritarian uh, leaders that can build um, airports um, in a minute, but not uh, looking um, at the right, do not look at the right of the people. So this is why I believe Handel durch Wandel, change through globalization, through trade, is still working. It's not working everywhere, every time, but it's working in most places at most times. And this is why globalization is still the key and multilateral agreements and multilateral rules are still the tool
0: to help this key work. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that is a great place for us to wrap uh, wrap up uh, our conversation. Uh, we've, we've covered a lot of ground uh, here. We started off with the common shared values that animate the German-American and the transatlantic relationship Um, including uh, in the economy. Um, We've talked about the the shared German and American understandings that that um, friend-shoring is most important in industries that affect national security, and that in any event, it is not decoupling. Uh, I think that was an important uh, shared understanding that came out of your discussions in Washington. I think we've also uh, heard about the real challenges that exist. I think you used the words in uh, concern and fear, um, but also uh, confidence and opportunity. Uh, and I think that has always been at the heart uh, of, the, uh, of the way that open societies uh, have approached uh, the economy. Uh, and it's really heartening to hear um, the shared understanding that it's still there. Yes, it is. And this is a unique
1: point in time. Um, um, To make that final point, you know, I can't resist. Um, If you look um, at the cooperation between the EU and the US in uh, Russian sanctions and in coordinating activities against the Russian aggression, um, this is really a collateral benefit of Putin's miserable strategy, you know, he brought us back together and he made both sides understand each other's perspective much better than before. So we are a good starting point to keep that going.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Carl Heusken, for uh, for this uh, conversation. Carl Heuskin, uh, president of the VDMA, um, the Machinery and Equipment Manufacturers Association in Germany. Um, and as we heard uh, with a, an important presence in the United States through your member companies, participation in the American economy. So we look forward to remaining in contact and uh, coming back and talking more about, uh, about these issues in the future. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure today. Um, and I want to thank uh, Peter Rushish and just to remind all of our listeners that we look forward to having you with us again on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org, or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.